0: I am Matilda Sturridge.
1: When I was 20, I believed that you fell in love, got married and lived happily ever after. When I was 21, I was pregnant. When I was 22, I was a single parent. This is a podcast about how your expectations of parenthood are often altered by the course of your life. This is Bringing Up Us. Hello everyone and welcome back to bringing up us the podcast this week we have an incredibly beautiful episode we've got Penny Winter on who is a writer and a photographer and a mother of two children she speaks so beautifully and honestly about her life experience listener discretion this week we touch on suicide during this episode I use the phrase committed suicide which I've been informed is an outdated phrasing and I really apologize for that we should be using death by suicide. That said, here's the episode. Penny, hello. Hello. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh no problem. I'm at all. so for me. so excited that we get to chat. I feel like there's actually quite a lot to get through. I
2: feel like there is. I mean, we started talking I know, before we started and talking... we had to stop.
1: I know, <laughs> just to be like, okay, no, we've got to save all of this for, for our actual conversation. How are you? How was your morning?
2: Ah, uh, excellent, lovely. I mean, it's raining in a really miserable, never-ending way, know, but apart from that, it's lovely.
1: It's now definitely autumn. It is, which I'm not
2: actually sad about, because I do love autumn.
1: So autumn's my favourite time of year. Mm. Autumn slash winter. This bit from October to December <gasps> is just, best. like, it's just so magic, and then you get to January and you're like, oh, everything is terrible. <gasps> See,
2: my birthday is in January, and so, so is my is daughter's. Hoodies. Ah, no it's the best. Hoodies. See, you extend the season. And it doesn't get bad until February then. When's your birthday? The 15th of January. When's your daughter's?
1: The 19th. Oh my gosh. So January's <laughs> pretty... The only thing with... So Rudy's birthday is on the 24th of January and it's great and amazing. It's also that much further away from Christmas. Yeah. So I, you can kind of do two sets of presents. But it is quite stressful when you get through Christmas and you're like, okay, now I have to get, think of new presents and think of a, a party and will it be okay? And it's a money suck. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you're very poor. <laughs> um, okay, so we start off every podcast with a question. Did you have an expectation of the parent that you wanted to be? Or did you even
2: want to be a parent? Oh, I I didn't think I did have very high expectations, but until it it turned out to be very different than I imagined it would then I realized how many expectations I had I think probably the biggest thing was I traveled a lot before I had kids all my childhood then with work as an assistant and then when I became a photographer I traveled a lot and and I just imagined I would travel with my kids I was going to be that parent who did like a year world schooling with the kids just because you know like we were gonna go off and we would go live in Thailand for a year or whatever or we would travel around and I would homeschool for a year if we felt like it or that was, that was what I sort of imagined. And also my family's all in Australia. So I thought, well, maybe I'll spend a bit of time there. Yeah. Maybe we'll do a bit of time here. I just thought it would all be quite a lot more flexible than it is <laughs> turned out, I guess. Yeah. And that, I mean, it couldn't be further from that now, in yeah. fact.
1: Yeah. yeah. Going back to the beginning. So you grew up in Australia. I did, yes. And you're, are you, how many do you have siblings? I have two older brothers. Yeah. Oh my gosh, So you've got so one of three. And you, your parents were together. And you, I was actually reading your blog, you spoke about how you, your father was away quite a lot, so your mum was you know really present
2: and yeah. raised
1: you, and you had a really sort of idyllic, lovely childhood. Red-
2: ridiculously idyllic, I would almost say. I know it sounds crazy, but I'm still very close friends with those four of us that lived on the street together. Mm. And the street we lived on, we still talk about how we had this kind of quite magical childhood together. Yeah. Um, we all um, it, the street was um, designed by a um, a British a female architect and garden designer mm. who went out to Australia in the nineteen in the in the teens, I think, or the 1920s, and built this whole street as a little experiment, almost like a kind of suburban experiment thing but it was more sort of further out and we each had an acre of garden and they're really beautiful gardens and it attracted families who really loved gardening and specifically english gardens so we had this kind of funny little enclave of families who moved there because of their obsession (laughs) with gardening (laughs) and um and we're all still friends today and and, you
1: were all like out playing and having
2: and having a great yeah we just had so much freedom and yeah we just um yeah we in fact you know of those the four of us three of us have gone on to have children and and they've all each of them got amazing lives in very different mm. ways but we still talk about it. we can't quite believe what we had did you think that at the time you realized how amazing it was I
1: think or did you look back on it and
2: go like oh. I think I did we traveled mm. quite a bit and I remember going to places like um in Asia and 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 things and saying to my mom I don't really understand you know when I'm seeing shanty towns and things like that and she's like you know like we we're what we have is really unusual yeah and she was sort of she didn't do it to kind of make make us feel like we um should be um ashamed of what we had but that she was really clear throughout our childhoods that what we had was quite we were really lucky that we we should be really grateful for what we have and not everyone has this kind of space to play that we have and mm. things so I think And I think with the travel as well, I knew that the travel we did was quite unusual and we were were quite lucky to have that as well.
1: Yeah, which, yeah, I think it's such an important thing to kind of, you let, you know, children who live so much in their own, you know, world to kind of go, but your world is, is really great and yet there are children sort of less fortunate and we should all kind of take in each moment and it's so nice that you now look back on that and go
2: yeah i mean i don't know if it's just that she talked about it Mm. rather than didn't talk about it which i think it's really easy not to talk about what you have and i try to do the same with my daughter now every now and then she'll say to me i mean are we poor because i'll say oh we can't do this and do that and do that we can't do all the things yeah and i'll be like no no we're not poor actually we're really compared to you know the vast majority of the planet we are exceptionally fortunate we don't have loads of money (laughs) yeah but that doesn't mean we're poor either but we
1: have a house and we we have have a home home. yeah
2: we have a home in a really expensive city we're incredibly fortunate you know um and and we can eat and we can do all the things that we need to do but it doesn't make it we're not rich or we're not poor yes yeah
1: yeah (laughs) so things changed when you were 11 is that right
2: yes yeah we um We moved to a farm, um, which my parents had owned probably for, I don't know, maybe five years before that, but they'd built, they'd just built a house on it. We moved to it. It wasn't that far away. It was just a little bit further out of Melbourne. And the day we moved, my mum had her first panic attack and she had been, she had never had any problems as far as I knew um, leading up until that point. I don't think she had, it's hard to know exactly, but I don't think she had any particular problems before that point, but that very much marked a change in our lives, we were kind of on a farm, we were more isolated. My mum started getting panic attacks. She started worrying then about getting panic attacks, and her anxiety increased. And she used to get panic attacks when she got into car. And obviously, we were, in a, we were on a farm and we had to get in a car all the time. Mm. So that was sort of the beginning of changes for us. And then eventually, the next couple of years, my parents got divorced. And then we moved back into town again. And I think I thought, oh, well, things will kind of settle because we're not on the farm anymore. But actually things just kind of got worse from there. Um and yeah, so she was very unwell throughout my teenage years with the anxiety turned into depression and then she started drinking and yeah, it just sort of went from there.
1: (laughs) And you in that time became her carer? I did, and I didn't
2: I didn't know that's what it was at the time. I wouldn't I I think if you'd said the word care to me as a teenager and I think still to this day you say the word care to people and they think oh that's somebody who looks after someone's entire personal care needs you know gets them out of bed helps them shower but actually it doesn't always look like that often it is just providing support for someone who can't do without it and so probably by the time I was 13 I was cooking a lot of my own meals I was checking that I didn't have anyone checking I was doing my homework I was getting myself to and from school without any sort of help from anyone else or any, even check. It. I don't think, I'm not even sure. My mum probably went through periods of time where she didn't even check I was going to school. Mm. She would have found out the school would have called, yeah. them, I'm yeah. sure, and I yeah. kept going. But, like, but, but nobody a, was, a no one was getting me out of bed sure, yeah. in the morning or anything like that. I yeah. was doing it myself. and And that's the point at which things flipped. And it was more me making sure she had eaten and checking in with her that she was getting out of bed and you know all that kind of stuff so there was a very much change around sort of 13 I would say that things flipped when you sort of speak of that and as an outsider you go
1: how incredibly difficult but I know that sometimes when you're in something you just go but that was my life that's just what I did and I didn't ever did you
2: ever you know feel did you ever go this isn't right and i did i did eventually yeah i mean i think i think at first it happens and i'm sure this is the same with lots of people who have a family member of of any kind with a mental illness it can be very gradual like you don't realize how much you're supporting them until suddenly you realize if you're not there a whole lot of things aren't going to happen um so um i guess it was quite gradual and then when i was Sort of fourteen, so I guess it'd been bad for a couple of years. By the end of that year, I was in year nine. By the end of that year, I really wasn't coping. I wasn't coping at all. I wasn't coping with the level I was supporting her. And it wasn't the physical stuff. It was just she was very much leaning on me emotionally, very much so. And and that was really difficult. I couldn't really think of a solution. My dad was living in LA, but he wasn't even there all the time because he travelled. So I couldn't live with him. Um, and also I knew that would be far too difficult for my mum to cope with. Did you have support of your siblings?
1: Or are they, were they, I don't know how much older they were, did, were they not my, there
2: or? My eldest brother wasn't there because he ended up going to boarding school when we went to, moved to the farm because yeah. his school was just too far away. And my middle brother didn't want to, so he moved schools closer and he stayed at home. But then, so my middle brother was there, who's only a year older than me. And we did talk about it a bit. I wasn't the only one doing it, but I don't know if it was because I was um the girl <laughs> mm. and my mother had been close to all of us and she was very close to my brother who's a year older than me mm. um he supported her as well I don't know if it was exactly in the same way um I spent an awful lot of time sitting next to my mom's bed listening to her and being her kind of therapist like essentially What's I guess so- and I'm not God, sure if my brother you're did so, that
1: you're so young and you're 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 growing you're a teenager and to hear it's it's so painful sometimes when you hear your parents open up and talk about life not being easy and you go suddenly you have to become an adult unbelievably quickly and you do walk away and you do worry.
2: Yeah, I think what happened was that I learned quite quickly that my mother couldn't cope with my emotions anymore. So she had been an incredibly supportive and loving mother um and she still was very loving mm. but she could no longer cope with my emotions anymore. So um, if I had had a bad day at school, I learned pretty quickly that if I told her, she would get worse. So it just meant that I had to manage my own feelings myself and and hide them from her essentially because she would get into more of a depressive side, um, sort of spiral. Where was really. your output? Did you have someone that you could talk to or did you Not then really, some, no. you know, hold things in? I guess I didn't speak to anyone about it. I mean, I had friends, but I didn't talk to them about it. Mm-hmm. Not specifically, they kind of knew a little bit, I guess, of what was going on, but not I definitely didn't talk about it openly. I don't I don't actually think I had the words to use because I didn't even know I didn't know what was, was happening, happening. Mm-hmm. and I didn't know. I didn't even I don't even I did know the word depression because my mother used it, but I didn't know any other words for what was happening, you know, like I guess I was really um protective of her as well. I didn't want to talk about her outside the house because I didn't think it would be fair as yeah. well um but so what ended up happening was that um I kind of came up with over Christmas, which is the end of the school year in Australia yeah um a solution which was that i I said to my dad when he was back in Australia I was like i think I think I need to go to boarding school and as soon as I said it, he was just so relieved that there was something he could do to help. He was yeah. just like, "Yes, yes, yes, this is what needs to happen." I was like, "Actually, I don't, I don't think I'm gonna, I don't think I can cope anymore." And that was really difficult because my mum was furious. She was, I was really say, furious. how was that
1: for her to then suddenly have you taken away? Did you feel guilt, or were you just like, "I, I have to, I have to be the grown up and I have to make the decision, and this is what I know is good for me and
2: maybe good for her." It was really. It was awful at first because she, yeah, she, you know, said said some really awful things and, you know, kind of essentially laid blame at my feet if anything happened to her. And that was difficult. But the thing that made it possible was as soon as I had made that decision for myself and it had very much come from me, suddenly people were coming out of the woodwork going, yes, 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 do it. So my mum's sisters and my dad and other adults friends in our life were saying yes yes you have to do this you have to do did it did you
1: ever at any point go where were you before did you ever go kind of but why weren't you kind of there supporting me before telling me that
2: you could I help I don't think I don't think anyone knew the extent of what was going on God, it's so, it's so interesting I don't think I think it was all quite hidden they knew my mum wasn't well but I don't I think they didn't it know was, what you were carrying I don't think they knew I really yeah. don't I don't really think about it. I don't really I don't blame anyone else actually no. like I don't Yeah I don't know I just don't think I just but I still to this day don't know what it was that made me able to make that decision but honestly I think that decision has been the single most important decision of my life. Really? Yeah I think everything I've done since then is because I I knew that I had the autonomy to help myself which is what I learned in that moment because I think no one else was going to fix it for me nobody else was going to give me an answer to our situation so I came up with something which may or may not have worked but it did work out and in fact actually after the first term I came back and I think I'd only been home because I went to like a proper boarding school which is very unusual in Australia where you only go have one weekend off a term I know it's probably more common here but it's really unusual in Australia Mm. Um, and so I came back after the first term and on that that evening my mum and I spent like hours chatting and that after we'd had that long conversation she said to me I'm so glad you went and she was just like I can see I can see you again I can see the old you back again and I'm so glad you did it but that didn't necessarily stay because of course whenever she was you know having a really bad time she would still bring it up you left you left you left but it But I knew that when she was in her right mind, when she was rational, when she was thinking straight, she knew I'd done the right thing. And so that made it a bit easier. But, um, yeah, I just, I don't, I can't even, I look back and I just think, thank God I made that decision and I don't even know how I did it. But I had this very strong feeling that if, that I was, that we were we were drowning and she was she was holding on to me and she was she was gonna drag me under and that if I didn't do something to save myself, we would both drown. And I couldn't even tell you why at fourteen that I had this instinct. But I could just see, I was like, I just I could see I couldn't save her and that she was gonna have to do that work herself. And I could be around and I still was a carer in a definitely was still a carer when I went away to boarding school I was still on the phone mm-hmm. I was still kind of coming home for weekends and I was still spending all my holidays with her but I was able to kind of create some quite strong boundaries because at school I could control when I spoke to her so if I, I had exams I just I wouldn't speak to her that morning yeah. I could speak to her in the evening after the exam because if I knew that if there was potential for her to say something that was going to be really difficult for me then I could just manage when those conversations happened.
1: And also you had time to be you and to be looked
2: after yeah and I felt very looked after at school yeah. actually I know not everyone probably feels that when they like whenever anyone sort of hangs crap on boarding schools and how awful they are I'm like some of us like yeah <laughs> and Obviously. in fact actually you know I know quite a few people whose you know boarding schools became their family because of dysfunctional things that were happening in their own families it gives such a stability to some people who's now ne- who've never had stability yeah and, and not always for the same reason as me but yeah. you know sometimes it's just their parents traveled their entire lives or whatever it is and then the, the school is a kind of you know a kind of main touch point in their in their kind of teenage years and that was very much for me it was a and it was also really funny because the kind of school I went to it's a bit more unusual it was full-on boarding school everybody there came from really really unusual different backgrounds and that felt comfortable as well like it didn't feel that unusual that I had one parent living in another country and one parent living in Melbourne and um you weren't isolated I didn't I felt life. less of a weirdo than I did at my Melbourne day school
1: that's really that's
2: yeah, yeah. <laughs> so nice. which had been quite conservative suburban school yeah and um yeah you were having so. people from all different walks of life and having all yeah different and all different parenting parenting situations. family situations yeah. yeah which yeah.
1: when you you know it's hard with family situations where it just and you're in little schools when people just have, or sometimes have lots of very normal families and when you're not necessarily normal it's really hard and you kind of question it and think about it a lot
2: yeah I was definitely I had a lot of friends at my school I'm still friends with a lot of friends from my day school but I um I was always definitely a bit of unusual there in that the way my dad worked and yeah and then the divorce and all that it was just yeah Mm. so it felt nice to be in a place where everyone was a bit unusual yeah you felt safe
1: yeah it all you know came to a head when you were 21 And your mum committed suicide. Yes. And we were just talking about grief earlier and saying it's incredibly hard when you have this mother that's been ill for a very long time and there must naturally be a part of you that goes, she's okay now, you know, she's okay." But then you've also had this mother who's been unbelievable and raised you and is your mum. And the conflicted
2: emotions must be incredibly difficult. It was. It was a funny time... Because i just moved, to i just finished university. I went back home to live with my mum when I was at university in Melbourne. And I did that partly because I had a feeling I was going to move to London or New York cause my dad lived in America so I could live in America. Um, just because of what I wanted to do for a living. I had a feeling that I would probably go and I didn't know how long I'd be gone. So I lived with her during university, which I'm obviously now incredibly glad that I did. Because yeah. we had three years living together in a way that was so much easier because I, had, um, I was able to really hold my boundaries. Like I had a car. And if things were quite difficult, I'd be like, you know what, mum, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm off. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'll see you later. Yeah. <laughs> uh, whereas in the way you can't do when you're 13 Yeah, Yeah, you're, you're more independent. And so we actually had a great few years, very up and down, but generally a great few years because I was able to, I was much more autonomous. Um, and then she died six weeks after I arrived in London. So I think the thing that was really tricky at first was my first reaction was, Why now? Yeah. Why now? Yeah, because she'd been ill for about eleven years at this point, and I'd gotten very used to this cycle of her going through a really bad phase and things being really difficult, and her going to hospital, and then getting a bit better, and then going through a better phase, and then a bit, and it was a cycle, and that cycle kind of just kept going, and I was getting used to this cycle now of oh, mum's good, she's not so good, I just thought, well, this is how we live now, you know, this is this is it, and hope, and I my hope was that the good times would far outweigh the bad, but I wasn't by this age, I was under no illusion that. It was just going to get fixed you know that it was going to go away i was very i understood much more about mental illness and that she was going to manage it for the rest of her life but i assumed she would learn to manage it and that she would have plenty of good time so i think the first thing was shock about why now um but then very very quickly that gave way to but actually you know it could have could have been when she was much worse when I was 14 15 like in terms of the frequency of her really bad periods it was almost all entirely bad actually at that point when I was 14 15 and she could have died then and then she didn't and my life would have been completely different if I hadn't had her for those extra years Mm -hmm. and I can't imagine not having her for those extra Mm -hmm. years even though that some of those years were really difficult so I think quite quickly I became really glad that she had survived as long as she had, and that because she had had a few suicide attempts mm. when I was fourteen, and in fact that was actually one of the one of the things that instigated me going or choosing to go off school because you know I got I would come home from school every day not knowing if I was going to find her, mm-hmm. and um, and I got I became quite accustomed to that, but then it's when you realise that that's what you're accustomed to it's quite depressing. So then when she did die, there was definitely a sense of, okay, now that that's the worst thing that can happen and it happened and it doesn't get worse. And there was a relief in that, in that I've waited for that phone call for about six years and now I've had it it doesn't, it's not going to come again. That phone call is not going to happen again. And there is a huge amount of relief in that. And I think there's something around the hypervigilance you have when you have um, someone that you're very close to who's suicidal because you are constantly waiting for that phone call. And to know that you'll never have to wait for that phone call again, there is, there's definitely a sense of like, God, it's like, relief is not quite the right word, but like, okay, so, yeah. it's happened. It just happened now i don't have to wait for that anymore um but then i went back to australia and the funeral was so incredible and so amazing and so kind of loving and yeah i i'd never really understood funerals before that point in fact yeah. i'd never even been to one i don't think actually i think she was the, yeah i think it was the first one i've been to and then um and it was incredible. I was like, oh, I understand what they're for. Yeah. Um, and That's I was worried that I wouldn't want to get back on a plane and come back to London, but actually I did. I felt really like I wanted to come back. Um then, you know, it was like right at the beginning of my post uni life and I came back and yeah, got stuck into life over here and it sort of felt okay. I think a lot of people were waiting to see whether I would fall apart and what would happen. But I think I'd done so much grieving already. Which is kind of You've sad to say, but I had, yeah. I'd had to kind of let go of her yeah. quite a bit already because she had not, she was not the mother I'd had when I was younger. So I'd already let go of her a little bit already. And I'd have, I'd had to do it because I'm, I i could not have the same expectations of her that I'd had when I was younger. So I'd sort of, I was still adored her and I still loved spending time with her and doing all these things, but she was not, she didn't play the same role in my life that she she had and she would have had if she had been well so yeah it was the process was already part way through I think when she actually died yeah Yeah. from it's it's just kind of when you
1: listen it's so unimaginable it just Mm. and it's you talk about it so extraordinary you're amazing
2: um well I would say it is has been almost 20 years as well and I couldn't have had this conversation no it's just kind of yeah oh god
1: it's just unbelievable do you think that it changed your outlook on becoming a mother yourself because you'd you know you'd been a carer and you'd be, you've had someone so dependent on you from such an early age did you kind of go was there ever a point that you went well you know maybe I might not you know I'd think about maybe that you didn't want to become a mother or you didn't want to be a parent
2: or that was far off and you needed just I I knew I wanted to be a parent but I was not in a rush. Yeah. Definitely not in a rush. Yeah. yeah, I definitely had a lot that I wanted to do. You weren't someone that was like,
1: great, okay, 21, I'm ready now. No yeah,
2: way, yeah. no way, no way. I couldn't have, I, I would have, yeah, I would have struggled. I mean, of course I would have coped. You yeah. you cope, right? You yeah, think. yeah, yeah. But it was not, no, I had yeah. a plan. Yeah, yeah. I had yeah, a plan and it was not part of my plan. But um, I think what it did do was it made me very clear on the things, questioning what I wanted and what I didn't want. And that sort of a few things happen over the next couple of years that reinforce that as well, randomly. Like, um, I think I had that first year in London and then I decided to move to New York. And sort of, oh. I just got, I mean, I just basically got on a plane with a bunch of contacts, like, written down, like, phone numbers that, that colleagues from London had given me for New York and, like, a little bit of money in the bank. And I that was I just wish <laughs> that I was someone that could do that. Like, I just don't... I, I wish that
1: I could be someone that goes, yeah, I'm just going to go to another city with nothing and just go and see yeah, what happens. Whereas I'm so panicky and I just I just, I,
2: 100% not brave enough to be that person I just completely respect to put my hands up. Yeah, so just, I mean, I think, I think this comes down to that decision I made to go off to school. I think I learned pretty early that when you take risks, they mm. often pay off. Yeah. And if they don't pay off in the way you imagine, they'll pay off in some other way. And always take the risk. Yeah, I'm, take I'm, I've taken a lot of risks.
1: <laughs> so when
2: did you fall pregnant with your son? I was 31. So I met my now ex-husband yeah. in New York and yeah. he's from London. Yeah. But we met in New York. We lived out there for a while. His job finished and he had to come back to, to London. And mm. I was like, you know what? I loved London. I could live in London again. So I decided to move back here as well. And we got married at 26, which I guess is kind of on the young-ish size. I think, I think maybe that was a little bit to do with me like wanting to have family and not just wanting to live with someone, or yeah. but wanting us to be actually family. Um, but I wasn't in a rush to have kids. And so I got pregnant at 31, which was all according to my plan. Was it all planned? Plan. Was well, it all kind
1: of like, this is now the right time? And we're ready. Yes, it was yeah. planned. Yeah, disgusting. it was planned. It was
2: like off birth control, Yeah, planned. Yeah happened in a reasonable amount of time for before I you know could get stressed about it yeah. you know yeah and then yeah, um it. and then it all went really quite smoothly Did and you well a great pregnancy and all. pregnancy was and... fine yeah I really enjoyed it yeah it was all fine I felt really good and fit and yeah I mean I was I was a bit nervous about what it was going to be like having a baby without my mum around but i wasn't so nervous that would have it would have put me off or i wasn't i wasn't like overly stressing about it or anything but it was sort of in the back of my mind a little bit what yeah. it was going to be like i had this really strong feeling the night that i found out she died i remember going to bed thinking i'm not going to fully feel this until i'm a mother yeah and so i kind of knew that i was i was opening something up that it would bring up. Yeah, I kind things. of knew I would. I, I knew I was pretty sure I could handle it, but I was sort of mentally prepared for all sorts of emotions happening once I became a mother.
1: Yeah. Did you share this with your husband? Did you sort of
2: prepare almost him that maybe this was gonna be a little bit more complicated? I think we talked about it a little bit, but not overly. I probably mentioned it, mm. but I don't think either of us knew how we were gonna feel. Yeah. But um and in the end I I didn't I don't it wasn't overwhelming. It, I did feel it. I felt it a lot, especially when meeting lots of other new mums, and almost all of them had okay, mothers, mom, yeah, that came and helped, yeah. And that was hard, and that still is hard, actually. Yeah. I'm a lot like at the school gates. I know quite a lot of the grandmas and the grandpas because they do one day a week or two days a week, or whatever, and the school drop off and stuff. Yeah. And every now and then, it is still a bit of like a reminder that oh that's just something that we will never have
1: yeah incredibly hard to to yeah to raise a child without your parents it is it's a hard thing and you don't necessarily think that when you're young but i think yeah it's it's difficult that you you still need to be parented when you become a parent
2: yeah and it's just in a different way yeah and and i'd become i think just so independent so fiercely mm. independent <laughs> from my experience as a teenager where i was just like right i just have to look after myself now and then you know even at boarding school i was i felt very looked after in some ways compared to home but you know you're still very much independent at school in lots of ways you do all your own laundry and you know all that kind of stuff um and you've got to do your homework and yeah it's then to then I moved I lived in Thailand for a year when I was 18 and then and then I moved to London on my own and then I moved to New York I was so brave used to doing and strong it on, on my own, on my own. Yeah. <laughs> and then I kind of knew maybe that might be harder with a child but also I was a bit like I do I I do it all on my own I'll figure this out well not on my own I was obviously doing it with my ex-husband but yeah. you know we the two of us were like yeah yeah we can do this we can do this on our own this is fine this is yeah. And then Arthur was born, and Arthur was born, and he was born a month early. Oh my god! Yes, that's quite scary. <laughs> so unprepared. I
1: did you yeah. know that he would come? Some people really sense when they no. think they're going to come, babies no. are going to come early.
2: No, no were you, idea. Were you?
1: Was it, did it? Were you taken by surprise? I mean, it,
2: obviously. Yes, <laughs> yeah. I. It wasn't. It wasn't super quick though, luckily, because I had a um, my um, waters leaked, so I had to go in and get checked, it, and they were yeah. like, "Yeah, yeah." baby's gonna kill him yeah <laughs> and then luckily they let me go home and for 24 hours and say well hopefully things will kick off his some antibiotics, oral antibiotics yeah. just in case and and luckily it did kick off yeah. and so it kicked off naturally and then the labor itself um went really well the very end of labor i guess which is like 12 or 14 hours overnight I was like feeling amazing. I was feeling amazing. It's yeah. So crazy. I was feeling amazing. I was feeling like yeah, I've done it. I felt like whoa. And I was Strong. ten centimeters. Yeah. And then everything.
0: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
2: Everything stopped. Just labor stopped. Everything stopped completely. And I was just sitting on the edge of a bed at one point going, um, what do we do now? (laughs) So then I had to all get started again with drugs and eventually he came out and then it was just in that last 15 minutes suddenly there was a whole lot of doctors in the room and he had gone into distress but it was like the just that last little tiny bit mm. and he wasn't breathing when he was born and I think at that point I was just like just get him out just get him out you know I was just I didn't know what was going on and yeah. um I think one of the doctors or the midwives or somebody was saying because they whipped him away to the um resuscitation yeah. thing, He's fine. He's fine. He's fine. Don't worry. Don't worry. And I'm like, I'm not worried. It was weird. Like I can't. Like I was so. You were fine and calm and yeah. I don't know. It was really strange. And then yeah then I had him. And then it, apparently then then everything sort of was fine. I didn't. He didn't have to go to Nico or anything like yeah. that. It was all um fine. We had to stay in for a week because he was small and because my waters had broken early. They wanted him to antibiotics and you know a few things like that, but nothing major. Mm-hmm. Just you know painful little things that meant we weren't allowed to leave um but yeah everything sort of from then on was quite smooth for a while so, yeah. <laughs> until things weren't smooth okay so let's so <laughs> Arthur
1: was diagnosed with autism yes and he was diagnosed when he was um, he was three but autism I feel like is such a like it, there are so many different aspects of it like it's not and
2: also there's lots of co-occurring conditions so Lot, you know, one kid with autism might also have a whole host of other... Got it. ...things going on as well, and... Yeah. Yeah, so there's a lot... Yeah, there's a huge variety yeah. for a lot there's of reasons. A, yeah. not just that autism is a variety in itself, which it is, of course. Because yeah. autism is just a way of kind of processing information, essentially, yeah. that's kind of... Yeah. So he was three,
1: but when did you realise that, okay, maybe he needs a bit of help or
2: support or something's, something's well,
1: troubling him?
2: I think between... Up until one, nothing was unusual at all. And then between, definitely between 18 months and two, it seemed like everyone else we knew had just took off developmentally Mm. and Arthur was exactly the same. Like he wasn't moving forward at all, nothing. Like there was no, it seemed like there was just, he wasn't learning anything. I remember somebody once saying to me, I think our kids are almost two, um, oh isn't it amazing they're like sponges at this age and i remember looking at her going i have no idea what you're talking about like i just just didn't that, that did not mean anything th- to me were you just did you kind of just go mm. so not along
1: or did you kind of go
2: actually i don't feel like arthur is a sponge right now i don't know it's really strange it's so many tiny little things and so many kind of suspecting so many little tiny things and you and it's hard to say because also people would say to me, Oh, does he do XYZ? And you and I'll kinda of go, Does he? Yeah. <laughs> he kind of does. Yes, he kind he kind of does. He sort of sometimes. Yeah. And of course it wasn't until I had my daughter and I saw her go through it. I was like, Oh yeah, he totally wasn't doing it. He was doing but some weird other version.
1: You're a first time mum. You don't know what, how they're meant to be progressing exactly. or what they're meant to be doing or what, you know, are they meant to be it's you're so learning things and it's always hard when someone's like, Yeah, no, my baby's doing this,
2: and you're like Okay. yeah sometimes it was just stuff like he had done it and he'd done it a few times over a few weeks and then it disappeared and this is very common with autism as well that um you you might gain a skill and then lose it right away or you might do it for a while and then stop doing it yeah. and then do something different instead and that that's now I know that that's really common at the time I'd be like uh, a health visit would ask me oh has he you know can he build a tower or whatever and I think yeah he's definitely done that yeah, yeah. and then of course I realized god he hasn't done that for three months you know whatever it is. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's not so it's not so clear cut yeah. as never having done something. It's just it's all a bit messy and murky, I guess. But um really the biggest thing was when my daughter was born when he was he was two and one month. And he did not cope well with her arrival. And that was when I was like, ooh, he's not just a bit late. There's something something else going on. He was he couldn't engage with her at all. And he couldn't – anytime she made a peep, he would scream his head off. Um, And I couldn't have her in the sling when I was putting him to bed because he would just scratch her and attack her if she made a tiny noise. I just – I couldn't leave them in the same room together. And then when he wasn't upset with her and throwing things at her or scratching her, he couldn't even engage with her at all. It was like – it was like she was an animal or something. Like he couldn't connect at all. So I was like, hmm. It's not like what I see other people yeah. with those pictures on yeah. Facebook of the, yeah. of the sibling so excited to hold their baby, you know. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't, there's nothing like that happening here. And he started pulling out his hair, and he was just clearly, incredibly stressed, incredibly, incredibly stressed. So I wasn't like overly like, right, we have to sort this out. I just was like, okay, I'm keeping an eye on it. I'm talking to the health visitor. She agreed that it was time to kind of maybe refer to speech therapy and. Again, you know, he he was quite – when he wasn't really miserable, he was extremely happy and he engaged well with me and that's actually one of the things I didn't realise for a long time. He was engaging really well with me but not anyone else. And so – and I think this is quite common as well. yeah. um, That somebody else will notice first because if you have a good relationship with the old child, they might be comfortable with giving you eye contact and and kind of engaging with you but they won't be comfortable with doing it with other people because it's too difficult for them. So – yeah, so it did take, it took a really long time and it was really two and a half. I was like, hmm, I think he might be autistic. And my ex was like, hmm, yeah, I think did he you might know, be right. Did you know anything about autism at this point? My but niece is autistic actually. Really? And in, weirdly, it was, made it trickier because she had really obvious classic signs. Mm. She was oh. at one, rocking back and forth and not giving any eye contact at all. And I was a bit like, oh, that's what autism looks like. And it's like that really classic kind of, things that you hear about she did those things and I was a bit like well Arthur's nothing like that because he really wasn't yeah so it took me a while to come to that at first I just thought oh he's got delays or something or he's very anxious or something like that and then after a while I realized oh actually no it's just it just looks different he just presents really differently to my niece who would spin you know like she would just spin around and things like that she just had different sensory things going on which is what I now know but um, so yes, yeah, so I did have a little bit of experience, but not a huge amount because obviously she's in Australia and I would only see her once a year, yeah. but, um, yeah, but it wasn't so a foreign word. You were like, it wasn't a foreign word. Yeah. I was not actually that scared about it. And it sounds sound really strange. Yeah. I wasn't that scared about autism. I was scared about how I was really worried about how dependent he would be on me. And how what I now realise is looking back, and I couldn't quite pinpoint it at the time what my fears were because I was definitely scared, but it wasn't exactly autism. I was really scared that he would have learning difficulties. I think that was mm-hmm. that was the thing. And I think that was because, I mean, I think people treat that like it's literally the worst thing that could ever happen to have a child with, you know, like an intellectual disability or learning disabilities. And now I can say that knowing that, that that's because... You know, I had really—it was a really coming from a really ableist point of view, which was that you know to be so dependent must be terrible. Um, I knew other autistic kids and adults that I'd heard of and read about that didn't have learning difficulties, and they just seemed really interesting to me. So I was a bit like, I can handle that, mm-hmm. but handling a severe disability, I was like, I don't—I don't know okay, if I can picture that. I can't picture it. Looking back now, I know why I can't picture it. It's because we don't see it. We don't see it. It's not in now. It's not something that we talk about. It's not something we see and out and about in our society or on our TV shows and in our books. It's not... You know, we don't hear disabled people's story. And that's why I now know how... Why I was so scared. In a way that I'm not scared anymore. Yeah. Not about those things. I get worried about other things. Yeah, but not course. about yeah. about those things. Yeah.
1: It's... It's so when i was reading up on autism and i was so shocked by how little i knew i just don't you know you kind of someone you know i obviously i know about autism but i don't know about autism and i was thinking the exact same thing i was like but why do i know and it's just not people don't talk about it Uh, um, lots of different things not only autism but it's just not it's not people don't share their experiences and how every child and adult is different and experiences in different ways and and something that one person would find hard not necessarily another finds hard and and I'm yeah I'm so pleased that we're talking about
2: it yeah I think it's just I don't know we're so we're so afraid of disability because we think It's treated like the worst thing that could ever happen. But
1: it's so shocking how afraid that we are, and how in this day and age that it's still, people are still so frightened of it.
2: Yeah. And I think, I mean, you know, I have my own very strong views about it. I think it's because we don't hear from disabled people. We don't, you know, we don't, we don't, those stories have not been heard. Um, And I think as soon as you start looking Mm -hmm. and start reading and start watching and listening and listening to disabled people, you realize actually, you know, we have so much we have so many other things to worry about oh my gosh. so many <laughs> yeah so, but
1: arthur was diagnosed when he was three yeah when you got your diagnosis which you sort of thought that you know you sort of guess what was going on was it were you now like okay we na- now know we're working with and and did you have support and this is now going to be our way of life and arthur is going to
2: well, need me more it was very much like yeah, yeah yeah he's autistic great okay thanks for the diagnosis right what next yeah nothing we got nothing there was just and the that was support. the thing that was oh that was really God. devastating about that time because we thought oh, we just need the diagnosis because then we'll access support yeah nothing we didn't get anything i think it's a big myth that around that people think that once your child is diagnosed with something that support then follows it really depends on the kind of disability and also where you live um we were sent on our way with n- he had had an occupational therapy assessment as part of his um, diagnosis process and it was we got a seven page report back and it was all the things he should physically be able to do yeah um at his age that he couldn't and then he was immediately discharged because they didn't have funding for occupational therapy so it was things like you know he couldn't hold a crayon he had no he couldn't he couldn't even squeeze somebody's hand because his, um his strength his muscle tone was really low and you know all these there's some very physical aspects to being autistic that kind of come along with it that a lot of people don't realize um and you know they wouldn't they wouldn't treat that they wouldn't give us help for that and support for that so I paid privately for occupational therapy this was after I did all the research and I was trying to work it. it's so expensive and I was like should I do it should I not do it? I don't really even know because nobody gives you any guidance as to what the, if you have a little bit of money where's the best way So you to spend had to pay it? privately to oh my god yeah and then um and he we were given he had between three and when he started school at almost five he had eight speech therapy sessions <laughs> in two years and that's what the nhs gives you and he couldn't speak he couldn't speak And when he went into school, did he go into mainstream school? Yeah, we made the decision. We were quite lucky. In a way, weirdly, the lack of speech helped in a way because nobody can ignore lack of speech. And so um, it's incredibly difficult to get your kids' support in in schools. And we managed to get it set up before he started school. So he was going to start school with support. Um, that was really mainly because of his speech difficulties. Cause it's, it's just, you nobody. Know, I mean, it's so glaring. Like <laughs> nobody yeah. can yeah, ignore yeah, yeah. that. Um, but you'd be surprised what everyone is quite happy else to ignore. But, um, so we kind of looked at all the options, special schools and, um, what's called a resource base, which is mm-hmm. like an autism classroom within a mainstream school and yeah. mainstream decided to try mainstream first. Cause he'd never had support before. So we thought, oh, we'll try it. If it and doesn't was work. the school really brilliant with with this and were they like, okay,
1: this is the support we can give and we really want to help the you and we really want him in our class. Very enthusiastic, and, yes. Okay. The
2: school was brilliant and my daughter still goes there now and yeah. they tried their absolute best and they were enthusiastic and said all the right things and it turned out to be the wrong decision. But not for want of trying. Mm-hmm. Like it was just the wrong environment for him. Mm-hmm. But they were really fantastic. They really did try. How quickly did you recognise that this was the wrong decision? Uh, I mean probably about a year and a half i gave it and then it took another year and a half to move him so he was there for three years
1: a year and a half to move
2: him. yeah it's a very it... long legal process this is the thing of um i think that's that's one of the things the most difficult about having oh, well, there's so many different difficult things yeah. but <laughs> yeah. about having a disabled child but is it like the amount of kind of dealing with local authorities and oh, paperwork just... and the nhs is it, it's I... a arthur has a EHCP plan so um educational health care plan which is quite very very difficult to get but essentially it's a contract that you have with the local authority to ensure that they meet your child's educational needs um, but it is a legal contract which means there's mm-hmm. a legal process you go through to get it and then the school that's named on that it's legally his school I can't just choose not to send him in there if I decided mm-hmm. he I didn't want him there anymore I'd have to go to a tribunal to get that changed it's all it's quite um yeah, it's not like unbelievably fiddly. It's it's very fiddly, yeah. and it's very and it, there's reasons for that. Obviously, to protect kids, it, that contract is there to protect my son's needs. It means that if his head teacher changed and decided to change things around the school, we have a legal document that says no, well, you can't just take that away. Look, it's written in this, you know, mm-hmm. this this contract. So um, it's there for a reason, but um, it does mean that it's not all. It's not up to me. It's not. I mean, my. And his dad's opinion is taken very much into account. But it is essentially not up to me where my son is educated. You know, at, after a certain period of time at mainstream school, we all sat around and we like, right, it's not working. Let's start the process to move. And the process has to be kicked off by the school writing to the education department saying, we, cannot, we can no longer teach this child we can't do it Mm. and so that's like the first of many quite horrific things that you have to go through saying we cannot have him here anymore and then um and then yeah it's an ongoing thing of yeah much documentation and panels and a lot of people making decisions it's not down to you it's just not in your hands and that must be incredibly frustrating i think that's the thing about life looking after someone who's disabled is there is so much outside of your control because I think one thing that's been difficult for me I guess is getting used to being dependent on people and systems and the government in a way that I had never ever been dependent on anyone in my life before since I was a child you know like it's I can't manage without help help without the money that I get from the DOP to help raise him without the blue badge that I had to apply for and sort of basically, you know, draw blood to get, um, without the school who provide an incredible amount of support. Um, but I can't manage without all of that. And it's in a way that is really different to my daughter. Who's not disabled. Um, of course, it's really helpful and amazing to have people around me with my daughter, but it's on another level with my son. Like I just couldn't, I just can't physically do it.
1: With your daughter, how does she manage when you obviously and it must it, you didn't obviously know when that she was born of Arthur's needs? But your you Arthur needs you, yeah, for everything, but also to ask for help for all of these things and your daughter obviously needs you because you're her mum, and yeah and in a way but how does she cope with knowing that okay mum, mum has got to be with Arthur right now because mm. he needs me at the moment and and I'm just gonna go and you know play does she manage it well and also I guess she, oh, you know in a way someday she's she does something yeah she yeah <laughs> oh and gosh. she's a carer in a way she as well is, you know, yeah she, she, is, helps she is she is technically a young Arthur carer is there for yeah. him
2: and is safe for him and yeah, she is. Yeah, she's definitely a young carer. Um, she obviously never has sole responsibility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll say that right now. I yeah. think sometimes people get confused when they hear the word young carer. It means yeah. that you might have sole responsibility. It doesn't necessarily. Occasionally, mm. it might be that case. But yeah, I mean, our lives are kind of adjusted and set up to support Arthur's needs mm. in lots of ways that mean our household is very different to her friends' households. Mm. So um, yeah, but I mean, partly she doesn't know any different. Mm. And other times, I mean, I have to be really... I have to listen to her and be really accepting the fact that she has some really difficult emotions around it sometimes. Like, you know, there's been times where she said to me, I wish he wasn't autistic. And I'm like, hmm, that's... It's actually not okay to say that. You can say you find it hard. You can say you wish he didn't hit you five minutes ago. You can say that you're really upset that he can't play with you and that you can't have a conversation with him. But you can't say in front because this is in front of him that you don't want him to be autistic because being autistic is so integral to his identity and who he is it would be the way i've explained it to her is it's like well i wish she didn't have brown hair i wish she didn't wasn't a girl yeah but like you can't separate out um arthur from being autistic because it's 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 intense. how he processes everything and his worldview is so different because of it that I can't separate it from him. It's no it's yeah. It's it's inseparable from him. And trying to explain that she can't say that in front of him it's really difficult because I want her to be allowed to express her feelings about it because it is hard because she can't play with him in the way that her friends can play with mm-hmm. their siblings. And that's not easy. And it's not easy that I also get very strung out sometimes. And I might have dealt with Arthur really well all day and all this behavior and all this repetitiveness and I've dealt with it really, really well. And then she does something and I lose my shit yeah. because I've t- I'm have i at the top of what yeah. I can cope with. And that's not fair. She's right. It's not fair. Mm-hmm. It's not fair. But I can't always, you can't, I can't always you like- You can't
1: do it right as well all the yeah. time. And There's no right and wrong. And you can't, you can't give, give yeah. and give and give and give yeah. it's
2: incredibly incredibly tiring yeah but then i would say that that that's sometimes she's like that and other times she's totally. Yeah. i mean i don't know like it's really it's really funny hearing her have conversations with her friends when she doesn't think i can hear her like in the, we'll, be, we'll be in the playground and um and she'll have made some new friends or see some other friends from school i don't know very well or who have never been around to our house and they'll see Arthur playing in the way he plays, which is very different. He just like makes a lot of noise, like vocalizes, and he like scatters sand. So he'll repetitively be scattering scan and making um, like kind of noises in his throat, kind of thing. And there'll be some kids just looking and being like just staring and yeah. staring and staring, and and say to her, "Why does he play like that?" And she'll go, "Well, he's autistic," and blah 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 blah. And she gives a whole and she has the most amazing spiel. And it's very, and it's very the way she talks about it is really inclusive and loving, and that's amazing. and she is a yeah. massive educator. <laughs> <laughs> so in, she has moments where she gets frustrated and upset, the same way I do, um, and I'm trying to help her articulate that in a way that's not hurtful, mm. and then other times where she's yeah, she's just really incredible, and she's yeah educates everyone around her. That's amazing. Do you
1: do you find it easy to sort of split your time between... No, no, I was going, no. How, how, do you, how do you even try Aww. and do that? Do you think that's just something you're just like, well, I mean, I think every parent, regardless, it's always a very hard thing to split your time. But do you think, have you just gone, okay, this is something that I'm going to
2: find fucking hard I always. flip-flop all over the place. I'm much better than I used to be. I'm much kinder to myself than I used to be. The first year was really awful it was really awful i was a very responsive parent to arthur in that he was in the sling all the time we lived in borough so i didn't even have a push chair the first until he was one i think i didn't get a push chair he was just in a sling it was just so much easier we lived in a flat uh got buses you know and um and he slept with me i guess for the first three or four months and then he slept very nearby Mm. Uh, we were in a tiny flat i could always just go to him it just was Yeah, I just didn't have to think about it. I just responded to him when he needed me. And then um, the first time I had to put Arthur to bed with no one else in the house after Agnes had been born, she was about two or three weeks old, I guess, when my ex had to work and I couldn't get anyone. No one else was around. And um, I had to put her in – he wouldn't have her in the room when I was putting him to bed. So I had to put her in the front room in like a chair or something and leave her um, and – Every time I got up to go see her because she was crying, he would start screaming hysterically and be wind himself up and then be completely awake again, so I just had to sit with him until he fell asleep because he was just struggling, he struggles with sleep quite a lot um and listened to her crying in the next room for fifteen minutes and I was just like it was devastating. I just was like, this is not how it's supposed to be like i can't like i never it was just. It's hard to describe – I mean, I'm sure you're you a mother, you know, the oh, idea of, like, yeah. if you can't get to your child when they're crying. And I had to make this decision because he was going to be completely hysterical if I left him as well. And I was just – I remember thinking, this is impossible. It's impossible. Like, how do people do it? And then I, of course, realised that we were in a slightly exceptional situation, and I'm sure it does happen with non-disabled kids sometimes too, but probably just not all the time. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I just – I had to have lots of I've just got millions of strategies just millions and millions of strategies and everything's quite complicated and organized and routine and la. An unbelievable toolbox <sighs> just a lot a big toolbox of tips and tricks and things um that I've that have had to evolve obviously with the kids as they evolve but you know he's coming up to 10 in a couple of months and I still lie with him when he goes to sleep every night mm. and I just a few years ago made peace with it yeah I listen to an audiobook. yeah and, and snuggle can't. under with him it's yeah. fine like it's not a big deal now i'm so used to it's it like sometimes that that panic of, of
1: you know you get the panic of going this isn't okay or i shouldn't lie or, i shouldn't do this and and actually just being like this is how this is what works for us yeah and not worry about it yeah just go with
2: it and yeah i think because you get so many people telling you how um how it should be that you sort of you question yourself constantly but also everyone else giving the ideas were in completely different situations but you kind of muddle through i mean i wish i was so
1: everyone throws so much information and advice at you but but it's your advice and your instinct that you need to take it's you
2: know you can pick at people's yeah tips but you can kind of go that's fine but actually tips are very handy to pick and choose from yeah try things out but yeah
1: so people go this is how you should do it yeah like maybe that's how you should do it but this isn't how we should do it yeah When you separated from your husband and became a single mother, which is the hardest thing in the world, let alone a single mother to two, let alone a single mother to someone also with a disability, where are you? How did you find you and you time and time for you to feel
2: free? You know what? That was actually the beginning of when it became easier to do that. I think because suddenly I did feel like I had headspace and I had privacy in the house and you know like when the kids went to bed I had time for me that wasn't taken up by this relationship that we, we were both struggling with and so it was sort of easier and, and we the kids were just three and five when we split up and so my daughter was at preschool and I just suddenly had a bit more headspace actually and then I got more childcare than I had before I got more into a routine my ex is freelance and I'm freelance and so we'd always chopped and changed with the childcare and it was messy and I was decided that, that was the end of that I had to get regular so I got three days a week childcare no matter what which was a big scary investment but I was like if I don't do it yeah I can't so I put in lots of systems to make our routine better and then um and then I just I just I just took time and I think This is something that I tell any friend whose child is about to go through a transition that means they'll be away from home more. Like so the first time they go to a nursery or the first time they go from nursery to school is just before anything else takes that time away from you, take it for yourself. Mm. Like just take it and do what you want to do with it. And that might be working on the business to earn more money or it might be exercising or it might be, um, I don't know, just – cooking or something i don't whatever it is it doesn't matter what it is but like don't let anyone else swallow it up so like when my daughter started preschool i started doing um just much more for me like going swimming and doing other things and then and working more as well and then when she went from preschool to school i had another um sort of like a Friday finally because I'd always she'd always been off on a Friday so I started writing again and that's so when she went to school is when I started writing again which I hadn't done um, I'd done a bit in my 20s when I was an assistant but as soon as I started shooting I was just too busy working and working on my kind of that career to kind of put everything else aside and then the kids came along and it was just too busy so when my daughter my youngest daughter went to school I started writing again and I was like right that's it that's mine and no one else can have that time Friday's Have nine. you found that cathartic? Your writing um, I mean I just think it's I've read all of your
1: blog and I just think it's unbelievable <laughs> and also your truth in everything and your it's you You. it's just kind of so you're so open about when life is wonderful and when life's a bit tricky and that
2: both are okay yeah I think I would hope that anyone would think if they read my work but but it reflects my life in that some of it's really difficult, but a lot of it is really amazing. I mean, it's exactly what it does. Yeah, I just, because that's what life is. You know, it's not one or the other. It's not all hard and it's not all fantastic. And um, I think we can get fixated on the hard stuff. But actually, you know, like my son is probably 70% of the time, like joyous, happy, happy happiest kid, you've ever met on the planet yeah. and then 30% of the time probably the more most miserable kid you've met on the planet like he's not there is no there's nothing else pretty much nothing he's yeah. like extremes and and I've had to get used to that and but also that's a lot of our life is like that living with him yeah. it's like a lot of it is really fantastic yeah it doesn't mean that the hard times aren't really hard they are but they also just not all the time yeah. so we just hold on through them move through them and yeah, I mean, I think I used to get, when he was very young, I used to be like, we've had a really bad day, a really bad day. Now I'm like, hmm, we had a few really bad moments today, but I don't even count the whole day as bad because there were moments and maybe it was an hour and maybe it was a really awful hour. And when we're in the middle of it, it felt just horrendous and painful and painful to watch him be so distraught and painful for me to experience it as well. But then the rest of the day, you know, it's right, not, don't write off the whole day. It's just that moment and then we move on.
1: Oh, Penny, I think you're totally <laughs> extraordinary in listening to your story. I actually just think that we, there's another podcast in this because I don't even think that we've got half of the things <laughs> that I've even written down and want to get through. Um, as we've just been speaking about, you have an amazing website where all of your photography and your blog is on it. What what's the website? Oh, tell, actually, tell. well,
2: that's, my photography is actually on a different. So, oh, is it? Yeah, my so portfolio is on a terrible. on a different. Oh, okay. Different, well, g- give that? us give us your your spiel. So, uh, Penny Winsor Penny Winsor writes is my where you can go to read blog posts, which are not updated very often at the moment because of other work. Um, and Penny is my photography work, which is completely different. Um, it's just my portfolio of photography stuff. And different. do you have anything exciting coming up? Well, I am writing a book at the moment. We
1: can't speak really about it, but <laughs> everybody keep, keep their eyes appealed for it Um,
2: but mostly I think you can just find me on Instagram that's the easiest place really I also did
1: that thing of just scrolling to the bottom of your Instagram and then going oh my god I haven't done that all the way no you know how you see someone just like develop through kind of social media and then it would start with a picture then there's your comments and then just this the way that you write resonates with me so much and I know that we have different
2: experiences but also we have such similarities well this is the thing I think it can be really easy to see each other's differences when we're looking at different people's yeah. lives. But actually, I think we always have more in common than we think we do. Yeah. Even if it's not like, even like, you know, you you might, you know, someone else but be um, a married parent or a same-sex yeah. parent or whatever. But like parenting a disabled child and parenting a non-disabled child, there are definite big differences, but there are also still loads of similarities yeah. as well. But um, yeah, no, Instagram has been really fun. I think people hang a lot of shit on it and it has its ups and downs, definitely. But it's been a really interesting way to kind of see what what, what commonalities we have in different people and also to hear different people's stories as well. So I've really... Which is exactly really, why we do this podcast, yeah. is just
1: to hear people's stories. And it's just so important that they get out there and people can relate and go, oh, okay. We end each podcast with asking a question what bit of advice would you give your pre-parenting self? Oh. It's such a hard one. Yeah. And also I you mean, don't need to answer it. Not no, everyone. I mean,
2: actually it's not hard at all. Just be kind to yourself. Because I think there's so, much, there's so much layers of extra suffering that happen when we're not kind to ourselves and the difficult situations we're in. So yeah, I would. Have, wish everyone, I wish every parent would have that. I think that's one of the best bit of advice that we've been given. I think
1: I give that is to new mums as well. I always say, just go gently, be yeah. kind. Don't. It's okay. Penny, thank you so so much. No
2: Thanks, pleasure. You.